Hello, it's Andrew Harrison here. Remember, we're doing a listener survey to find out what you think of the bunker, what we're doing well, and what we could be doing better. If you fill it in and let us know your thoughts, you'll be entered into a draw to win one of five bunker t-shirts. The link is in the show notes to this episode. Why not do it while you're listening to the podcast? You'll be helping us out in a big way. Now, on with your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Militant union barons holding the country to ransom. Or is it just working people organising to defend the terms on which they sell their labour? The recent spate of strikes is only expected to intensify as the cost of living crisis bites. And as it does, both government and opposition will struggle even more, each in their own way to define their position on this. My guest today teaches employment relations at the University of Leeds. She's the co-editor of Union Voices, developing organising in the UK, has held a number of positions in the trade union movement, and has worked with pretty much every large union in the country. Welcome to The Bunker, Professor Jane Holgate. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Let's start you off with an easy one. Shaw once wrote that trade unionism is not socialism, it is the capitalism of the proletariat. (laughs) How much truth is there to that, considering it deals with selling and buying? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, trade unionism and the employment relationship is all about power. It's about, you know, the balance, the imbalance of power in the employment relationship and trying to ensure that uh, workers get a fair share of the money that companies raise through the labour of, of workers. So it's very much obviously related to the state of capital at any particular time in history. If you were taking a sort of a whistle-stop tour through the history of unionism in the UK, what would you say are the biggest milestones in terms of unions gaining power and then losing some of it? Okay, I mean, yeah, if you look at the statistics on trade union membership growth, you'll find that it very much correlates with the First World War, the Second World War. So when we're in periods of crisis, then we see workers starting to to join unions, to think about power, to understand their relationship with, with capital and the ability to extract more from employers as a consequence. So, you know, during the First World War, there was a massive spike in union membership because workers realised that they needed to do, the employers and the government needed them to do the work necessary for the war effort. So their bargaining power increased massively. And we saw that again in the Second World War. So could the current crisis also drive union membership? Or are we seeing any signs that it is doing that already? Well, we, we are seeing some signs that there is there is some membership growth, but not at the same level at all mm-hmm. that there was in those particular periods. I mean, the crisis was incredibly deep then. That's not to say that workers today are not are not suffering from the, um, you know, the, the, the crisis in, in the economy. Uh, but we're not seeing those spikes as yet. But of course, we're early days in, t- in terms yeah. of the crisis. It might be there will be a, a sort of a, a backlog in terms of, you know, when that growth occurs. But we are seeing, you know, if you look at the statistics in terms of, you know, just Google searches for trade union membership, we see that they've increased significantly and unions are reporting that members are joining unions, and which is always the case when we have strikes. Um, yeah. But I'm not, I don't think we've got any significant growth as yet, but it's still very, very early days. 
And how about the rolling back of that power? So we saw the power increase essentially around the two great wars. And when did they start to basically have government regulation impinge on how they could behave? We saw that in the in the 60s, um, there was an infamous report, the Donovan Commission was tasked with looking at how to curb union power and to balance out the relationship a little bit more. So we saw that in the late 60s. And of course, you know, there was legislation in the 1970s, but it was particularly when Thatcher came to power in the 1980s and 1990s, where we saw continuous introduction of legislation to curb union power. Secondary picketing was outlawed, for example. The closed shop was abolished. So there was a whole raft of legislation uh, year after year after year, which was planned many, many years in advance, actually, you know, in, in the 60s and the 70s, to try and curb union power. So that had a, a great influence on trade union membership growth, but also trade union power. Conservative governments frequently boast of their tough stance on unions and taunt Labour for being too cosy with them. In what other context would leadership brag about having a terrible relationship with the people whom they need to actually deliver their goals? I can't think of any business context in which the CEO would come out and, and say, all my workers hate me. <laughs> it's a strange thing to do. I mean, it's obviously very ideological. But given the fact that the electorate is made up predominantly of the working class, you'd think those attacks on the working class would make people less likely to vote Conservative. But it doesn't necessarily transpire that's the case. As we saw, you know, Thatcher came to power precisely with the aim of curbing union power. Yet it was the working class in the millions that elected those Conservative governments. The Conservatives often bring in or, or threaten uh, legislation against trade unions, but it often backfires, I think, because unions start to get really savvy and start to think about, well, OK, if you're going to do that to us, then what will we do in response in terms of how we organise and how we think about strategies for the future? We're also witnessing Labour trying to distance themselves from unions, in a sense. Um, their line is that government cannot act as broker in negotiations or in, in many cases for public workers as a party to negotiations if you're simultaneously sitting on the same side of the table as one of the parties. Is there any merit to that argument, do you think? I don't think there's any merit to it at all. I mean, if you look back through the, you know, through, you know, through history... You see that there's always been the relationship between tripartism, the state, the employers and the unions coming together to plan for the future, to plan the economy, to ensure that workers receive a fair pay for a fair day's work, for example. And, you know, that was that was the model that was adopted in the post-war period. Since that time, that's been rolled back and the state has withdrawn from the employment relationship and having a say in the employment relationship. But that doesn't mean that it always does that, because in a sense, it gets round that by funding bodies, like particularly if we look at the rail strikes that are taking place at the moment, the money for the train operating companies comes from the government. So the yeah. government is involved, whether it likes it or not. So it has a say 
in what goes on in the rail industry, which is why the unions keep saying, you know, this is not just a fight between us and the train operating companies. It's a fight between us, the train operating companies and government. The train operating companies are stuck in terms of they've only got a finite amount of money, which comes from the government. And if the government's threatening to withdraw that, then the knock-on effect is they start to attack workers. But the government is involved in that process, whether they like it or not. Let me challenge that a little bit. So I used to be in the civil service, and it occurs to me, for instance, that occasionally trade unions make demands that are basically slightly against each other. You know, senior civil servants have a a different union to junior civil servants. Nurses have a different union to doctors. And so drawing an extension to that logic, how can a Labour Party or a Labour government be on the side of all of those unions who are effectively making demands that are counter to each other? I'm not sure the demands are counter to each other. I mean, they might be different, but different unions are representing different groups of workers with different interests. I seldom come across demands which are counter to other unions. I think they, like I said, they're different, but they're complementary in lots of ways. I mean, basically, workers are just saying, you know, particularly at this time, we want a decent wage that allows us to have a living wage and to be able to get by in society, which I don't think is an unreasonable demand, given the amount of profits that are being made by some of the companies that they're working for. The train operating companies are making vast amounts of money and are owned by often overseas companies who, you know, take those profits and invest them outside of the country. There's all sorts of different ways of thinking about this issue and it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily straightforward, but I don't think the demands for workers are generally, particularly at this moment, unreasonable in, in any way. Yes, no, I don't think they're unreasonable. I was just trying to hint that they're, at times of scarcity, they can be competing, I guess, because for public workers, the money comes out of effectively a budget that is for everything. But again, profits are being made out of companies that were in the public. You know, we saw under Thatcherism lots of privatisation. So again, a lot of the money is going into private shareholders rather than being reinvested back into the public sector, which, you know, it, it should be. So again, I just think that workers making those demands are not really necessarily counter to each other. It's not as if there is a finite amount of money. It's just where yeah. the money is going to. So what do you think, If like if you were advising on policy, what do you think the right position for Labour is? Is it actually very simply to say we're always on the side of working people? And that's that. We support their right to strike. We support, you know, their... Uh, demand for a fairer pay, especially during this difficult time. Is it actually a lot less complicated that, than Labour are making it currently? I think it's so. I mean, we've got to remember the Labour Party was founded by the trade unions in, in 1906. You know, the Labour Party came about because of trade union organisation and trade unions wanting a voice in the public sphere. Labour in the past has been very supportive of unions And I was only thinking this morning, going back to Blair, who's obviously considered centre-left, centre-right. But actually, if you look back at what he did, he introduced a lot of legislation which was beneficial to workers, introducing the national minimum wage, for example, the union recognition legislation which was brought in, the right for workers to, you know, if, if a certain percentage of workers decided they wanted a union in their workplace, 
They could have statutory recognition for that. Uh, the working time directive, all sorts of legislation came in. And we sort of forgotten that now because it is almost history. But the Labour Party then wasn't considered to be very progressive. But if we look back, <laughs> compared to what's being said at the moment by Keir Starmer, it does seem quite progressive. And I think Labour has got a role. If it is to be the party of the working class, it's important that it reflects the interests of the working class. I mean, that's the conundrum, isn't it, Jane? That's the paradox that it seems like Labour has to talk tough on unions to get into power and then do good things for working people. But that creates bad feeling, basically, among its base. I mean, I don't know how to square that. Circle. Well, I, you know, I think Labour could be doing a lot more to, to move away from that by just saying some really basic things, which I think are popular for workers, that there should be a living wage for everybody. There should be standard, so a good standard of healthcare. There should be a good standard of of living in general. We saw during the COVID crisis a Conservative chancellor handing money out like sweets almost in terms of <laughs> dealing with what was going on in the crisis. It can be done when there's a political will to do so. Yeah, of course there has to be payback at times, but of course we saw that it's possible to do that. And I think Labour just needs to be a little bit bolder rather than chasing the policies of the Conservatives. Let's move on to the Conservatives. They are, after all, the people in power. The front-runner in the Tory leadership race, Liz Truss, says she will legislate to prevent essential workers from striking. I mean, how can any government force someone to work if they don't want to work. I get the headline-grabbing gist of it. I just don't get how practically it can be done. Yeah, and it shows a complete misunderstanding of the employment contract. You know, this is a contract entered into by two parties and can be broken by each party. You know, you, you get layoffs, you get redundancies, you get workers exiting when they've decided they're no longer work, work there. It's not a contract in the same way as other contracts. It's an open-ended contract. So I think there's a misunderstanding of that, of course. But we need to look at the ILO regulations in relation to the right to join trade unions and the right to strike. And it seems like the Conservatives are ignoring all the ILO regulations in relation to workers. And I think what Liz Truss is doing at the moment is trying to sound hard on unions, tough on unions. But actually, I think when it comes to it, you know, when you start to legislate over these things, it becomes much more difficult. As you say, you can't force workers to work because if you do, then that becomes slavery. Are there indirect ways to achieve this by financial incentives and disincentives by, you know, other indirect legal ways of upsetting that balance of power? Well, if you look at the strike figures today, um, well, actually, we've not got we've got, not got immediate strike figures, but if we look back to 2018, we had something like just over a quarter of a million working days lost through strike action, which is a tiny amount. If you go back to 1979, there was nearly 30 million... <laughs> Days lost in strikes. So we're talking about strikes at the moment as if they are, you know, massive events. But, the, you know, the numbers actually taking part are still very, very small. So I think what that what that shows us is that over time, workers are generally 
this is probably an over-exaggeration, but generally content at work. If they're paid decent wages, if they've got, you know, regular working hours, then actually workers are unlikely to go on strike. It's costly for companies, it's costly for government, and it's costly for people who have to make alternative arrangements when workers take strike action. So I think I teach human resource management and employment relations to students and one of the things we we always talk about is like you know getting the employment relationship you know harmonious is what the workplace should be all about if you do that and you have contented workers then a workers don't join trade unions and then they don't go on strike i think if the conservatives really want harmony in the economy and they want workers not to be on strike then actually i think they need to be taking a different approach and if they do go down that road and end up breaching ILO regulations, which I should say for listeners is the United Nations International Labour Organization, right? Are there sanctions? Does this body have teeth that it can say to countries too far? It doesn't have an awful lot of teeth, unfortunately. Um, it is generally respected by governments around the world, less so by governments in this country. What will happen is workers are very inventive about taking action when there's discontent at work. So even if there's not strike action, what workers tend to do is become less productive. We have one of the lowest productivity rates in the, you know, in the Western world, in the UK, We've often been referred to as the lazy man of Europe in terms of work. But workers are very inventive. If you annoy workers enough, then they go on and go slow. You get greater absenteeism. People exit work more, which costs employers more. So it has a really negative knock-on effect. So it's not a smart move for either companies or governments to treat workers badly. What do you think is the media's influence in shaping this narrative of confrontation, of always saying... It's union barons versus hardworking people, as if unions do not consist of hardworking people. And do some unions get a rougher ride than others? I think train drivers, just from the top of my head, get the roughest ride, but no one dare say anything about nurses, for instance. Well, it's not it's not so much train drivers, it's train staff. Um, so the, the RMT, the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, has been in the press a lot because of the rail strikes. But the, the strikes up till now, until very recently, have not been train drivers. They've actually been, you know, station staff, the dispatchers of trains. And I think they do get a hard time because we all travel around generally for work, for pleasure, for holidays, etc. Um, so we rely on public transport a lot. But that's what makes the union really effective. They have a lot of power and their power is immediate. If they go on strike, you can't travel. Mm. That's different from other workers who might go on strike. For my own union, for example, university lecturers, we've taken 49 days of strike action over the last three years. Some people might say, well, we never even noticed. Um, I mean, the, the, the students did, um, but it has a much more of a, a, you know, a lag to it in terms of it's less immediate. So I think train drivers, as you say, and train and train staff tend to get a hard deal on this because there's the immediacy of it and it's very visible and it's something that media pick up on. I don't think the media really reported very much the, the strikes in universities over the last couple of years. Molly Ivins once wrote, and I am paraphrasing here, that although a small proportion of people in a country are in unions, they actually set the standards 
for salary, for terms, for conditions, for health and safety, for really all workers, and that if you're getting a good salary in a non-unionized role, you're getting it because a union has actually um, fought for it. Do you think people understand this connection enough? And what can we do to improve the public's understanding that they are the canaries in the mine, to use a very union-specific expression. Yeah, I mean, there there has always been um, a wage premium for being in a trade union. You tended to go, if you're in a trade union in a recognised workplace and you're paying conditions and negotiated by your unions, you've tended to get a premium compared to other workers. We are, however, seeing that fall because trade union membership is not, and density is not as high as it was in the past that is problematic. But I'm not sure that generally workers understand trade unions. I, like I said, I teach trade unionism to, to young people. And the first thing I do when I'm talking about trade unions is have to explain what a trade union is. We spend the first lecture, probably half an hour, trying to talk about the, the concept of trade unions, the workers coming together collectively. So I think people's understanding of trade unions is nowhere near what it was in the 70s. I mean, I grew up in the 70s through the sort of 1972 minor strike, the 1974 minor strike, the winter of discontent in 1979. I could name all the, tra- as a child, I could name all the trade union leaders because they were on TV every night. That's not the case anymore. People might be able to name Mick Lynch, you know, the general secretary of the RMT union. But I challenge <laughs> members of the public to actually find the names of any of the other ones. So... I think we're in a different place when we were in the 60s and 70s and perhaps even the early 80s. What do you think are the chances of a general strike in the coming months? I think it's highly unlikely. I know unions are talking about it and we are seeing some serious strategising between unions in terms of coordinating action. But union ballots take quite a long time to organise. You know, members need to be consulted, they need to vote, and then there need to be plans for that industrial action. I do think we will see, you know, we've seen barristers out on strike recently, postal workers, university lecturers um, and the rail workers. But I think we're all, got all, you know, coming into the next period, we might also see nurses, doctors, whoever, because everybody who is in a trade union is wanting their trade union to be fighting for them. I think we're a long way from a general strike, a long, long way. It was 1926 since we had the last one. Um, You know, we were in a very different position then. I think we're a long way from that. But I'm hoping that trade unions, as a result of where we are, will get better organised and start to coordinate themselves better. One final question, sort of looking forward a little bit. Abraham Lincoln famously said that, you know, labor exists prior to the capital. The fruits of the capital do not exist unless someone does the work effectively. In an era of increasing automation and leaps in AI and robotics, does that syllogism still hold? And might there come a time when it doesn't? When actually capital can do without labour? I don't think it can. I think I've, I've read a lot about, you know, um, AI and its effect on workers. And it, of course it will have an impact and it's something we need to keep an eye on. 
at all times. But I think, you know, you just look at many, many jobs that just can't be done by by robotics. And I think, it, we're, again, we're a long way from realising that. And I think we will be relying on workers for decades, hundreds of years to come, to be honest. Professor Jane Holgate, thank you so much for your insight. It's been short, but it's been an education. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod almost every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you like our work, you can support us directly on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You get lots of benefits in return. The first step in the evolution of ethics is a sense of solidarity with other human beings, wrote Albert Schweitzer. Next time you experience some inconvenience because unionised workers have decided to use their power to improve their lives, do not ask why they get to do that. Ask instead why you do not. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.